It is a bit strange for me being here, not because coming to Oak Hall is strange, but when I left school many moons ago, uh, already God had indicated that I should be working for him abroad and probably in France, and In leaving school, I felt it was important to get uh, some experience in real life. And uh, so I got a job in Garden Lofthouse, which of course was here. And Garden Lofthouse uh, at the time were printing uh, records sleeves, is that what you call it? Or or jackets, sleeves? And uh, this, of course, was the time of the Beatles, and uh, in the production place where I was working, uh, when uh, there was a record that was important, we would print 10,000 or 20,000 sleeves, and when there was a Beatles record, then everyone went berserk, and the printing presses ran day and night as we went at least up to 80,000. And that's where, here, it was here where I gained experience of life and, uh, of course, never dreaming that I'd be coming back and preaching the gospel here. But I want to ask you a question. What do you think is the best-known verse in the whole of the Bible? I, I'm very hard of hearing. I haven't put on my... It's What? John 3.16. John 3.16. And to prove to me that you all know it by heart, I'm going to listen to you. And it would be very interesting to see how many of you say it in the old versions or in the modern versions. For God so loved the world that his only begotten Son, that whoever or whosoever believe him not perish, but have everlasting life. And I have put in one of the more modern versions, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And when I was a small boy brought up in Cape from here, I was reminded that God didn't send Jesus only to save the world, but he died to save me too. And one of the things that I was taught very, very early on, and I think it was in Oak Hall Sunday School, I was told to take away for God so that the world and only son that whoever or whosoever as I learnt it in the good old days. And I was told to put my own name there. For God so loved Chris that he gave his one and only son that if Chris believes in him, he shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And uh, it was a reminder that Jesus loves me. And... uh, Of course, that is the center of the whole Christian message, isn't it? It's not that God just loves the whole world, but Jesus loves you, and you, and you. 
And we echo with the Apostle Paul when he said, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But one of the strange things, as you read the New Testament, despite all these assurances of God's love, and I think we could all agree that God's love is absolutely central to the whole of the teaching of the New Testament, can you think of any occasion where it specifically mentioned that Jesus loved somebody? It's never, it's never, uh, never mentioned that Jesus loved the Apostle Paul. It's never mentioned that Jesus loved the Apostle John. He would call himself the disciple that Jesus loved, but that's something he feels. And there are only two instances in the New Testament where it's actually mentioned that Jesus loved somebody. And uh, I just want to give you one tonight, because otherwise Dave Hughes will look at me again. And if this is so rare in Scripture... We who are Bible-believing Christians, we should wake up and listen because God is trying to say something very important. And so we are going to be uh, finding that Jesus loves Lazarus. And this is in, this is in uh, John 11, verse 16. John 11. And verses 1 to 6. Now there was a man named Lazarus. And a man named Lazarus was sick. He was ill. He was from the village of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now this is very rare. Okay, so we've opened our eyes. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Twice, in just four verses, it says that Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Very odd. Now, Mary, Martha and Lazarus lived in Bethany. And Bethany is here and it's now swallowed up in the suburbs of Jerusalem. But uh, there's a valley there. And obviously when Jesus came to Jerusalem, Bethany was his stop-off place. And he just had to go down into the valley and up again uh, to Jerusalem. It was just a few minutes walk. And obviously Jesus liked spending time with Lazarus, Mary, Martha and the family. And uh, they were not just acquaintances that they met on church on Sunday morning that there were people who Jesus loved. But 
The word Jesus, or expressed that Jesus loved, is mentioned twice. And what is the result when Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill? He stays for two more days. Now, don't you find that odd? When you hear that a friend has a problem, when you hear that somebody you love has a problem, do you just put off something? I remember when uh, my daughter Sarah, she ran out of petrol on the motorway just, just near us. And she rings me up and explains to me that uh, I have got to drop everything and bring some petrol to her. Uh, my daughter does express herself quite clearly. And uh, bring her petrol because uh, she couldn't move on the motorway. So what did I do? I was actually involved in trying to work and, uh, and uh, she was disturbing me. Of course, I went to the petrol station, got a can of petrol and go to on the motorway and everything was all right. Now, supposing I operated like Jesus. My daughter, who I love. Dad, please come and bring some petrol. Okay. Well, I'm actually involved in some important things here. I'll come tomorrow. What do you think she would have felt? Now, I'm a bit hard of hearing, but I'm not quite hearing you properly. What, what, what do you think... Uh, Mr. Bowker, I'm going to ask you directly, what do you think that my daughter would feel if I said I'm going to come tomorrow and help you with your petrol problem? Fill up. Dave, what do you think? Huh? Jake, oh, that's not the right Dave. Mr. Saltiel. Hurt. Well... Because waiting, when there's an urgency, is seen as a lack of interest, isn't it? Because when somebody you love has a problem, you leave everything and you go because it's an urgency. No? Yes? And Jesus stayed two more days. And so we have a very strange reaction from Jesus and the reminder Jesus loved Lazarus Mary and Martha not just once but twice and of course the New Testament writers they didn't underline people in a, in a with the uh, underline was in the yellow marker so that you'll really understand or put it in a, a 92 font you just got to wake up and see what's going on here and, uh, of course, Martha, Martha reminds him, when Jesus actually gets there, two or three days later, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, it's your fault. 
And you, and you can hear in those words the hurt, the feeling. And God loves us even when we have to wait. And the question I want to ask you tonight is how do you deal when God is, with the fact when God is silent? Or perhaps every time you pray a prayer, God answers. No? How do you deal the fact? Do you ever feel to yourself, well, does God really love me? Is there something I've done wrong so that God doesn't answer my prayers? And in this passage, what God, what Jesus is saying is, look here. Even if I'm silent, even if I'm not doing something which is legitimate, that you want me to do, I still love you. Not just once, twice. Now the question is, the question is, why does Jesus make us wait? Why does God make us wait? Now of course there I could speak for a long time and give you many different answers and many different possibilities. I just want to give you two tonight. The first one is, well, God loves and makes them wait. So that more glory can go to God. That's one of the reasons. In fact, Jesus says that. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. How can God love us and make us wait? Let me take you back to when we were uh, praying for our new building. And there uh, we, it's in a, oh, how do you say co-propriété in English? Uh, the, and th- this, this uh, industrial complex is owned by a number of owners. And we were offered uh, these three halls or, uh, or possibilities. And the, uh, the printing shop was the biggest one where we felt we could put 500 or 600 people. We, in another one of these halls, we could uh, put in change into a, uh, a children's and youth group uh, building. And we signed the preliminary agreements on the 24th of April, 2012. Now, I can't remember how you operate when you buy property in England. In France, you sign a preliminary agreement, and in the preliminary agreement, you you put down 10% or 5% of the amount, which is put into escrow, is that the right word? Uh, And uh, and, uh, what you do is you put suspensive clauses, is that the right word? You've never heard of suspensive clauses? Well, I have to explain them. 
because Google Translation said that was the right way of saying it in English. And you all know that Google Translation is exactly the right thing you want to do. You put clauses in, in the preliminary agreement which enables you to back out if the, uh, the thing doesn't go through properly. The first thing we put in the suspensory clause was for getting building permission. We had been told verbally by the town hall that we were, they were happy about this. But of course, if we didn't get planning permission, then we weren't going to sign the final act. The second clause that we put in was we wanted to get a bank loan. And it was 600,000 euros. We didn't think there was going to be a problem. And uh, so we, uh, we, we prayed about that. And you have two months, two months for the bank to give you, their, to grant you the loan. And so that's April. May, June. Our bank, who had seen our offerings go up 10% and even more every year, decided they weren't going to support us. We were very surprised. We went to other banks, and the bank said, we don't give loans to churches. Okay. And May went past. June arrived, and we only have a few weeks. And it was then that uh, Manu Renard, who took over from me as the senior pastor, he said, June is going to be a month of prayer. And so we prayed. And we prayed. And we prayed in the evenings. We prayed in the mornings. And we said, Lord, you have been leading us in this way for months. And you're not going to stop us now, are you? But God didn't answer our prayers. And we were feeling more and more tense. And we are now a week before the deadline. And so we organized a prayer march. And so we, we prayed before one of our old buildings. And we said, Lord, thank you for all that you have done. You have answered our prayers up until now. We want to give you glory. We went before one of the schools and we said, Lord, there are only 40 young people in our youth group. We believe you want there to be far more than that. We pray for the youth of Ponto Combo. And then we went to a bank. And there we are, praying before the bank. And we're saying, Lord, this week, we need to see a bank loan. Otherwise, it seems that our whole project is going to go down the drain. And you can imagine the intensity of our prayers. And, well, to be quite honest, there were some people who were doubting. Perhaps there were a lot of people who were doubting. You can imagine how we felt when two days later we had a bank ring us up and say, your loan has been granted. Next Sunday, we did not have the need to have a lot of warming up for people to praise and worship the Lord. And you see, if the bank loan had been given us 
the first time we'd think, oh, that's fine, that's great. But the fact that we'd had to wait for one month, two months, that meant that who was in charge? The Lord. And who got the glory that Sunday afterwards? The Lord. And so, one of the things is that so God, so that more glory can go to God. The second reason is to stop them being spoiled. Now, I've noticed something very strange. When people become Christians, and they're young Christians, very often what happens is that God gives them remarkable answers to prayer. Have you seen that? Or perhaps you remember, some of you older people, you should remember back in. And God is very gracious. And for a few months, we live a high. How can this be that God, who has a special relationship with me, the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me, and he is answering my prayers, and, and you're living on cloud 36. And then all of a sudden, and perhaps that's been your experience, all of a sudden, the answers to prayer don't come quite as quick. And there are God's silences. And all of you say, what's going on now? The God who answered my prayers so quickly doesn't seem to be working in the same way. And what is God is saying God is saying this, is that God is not at your service. God is not going to react when you say, God, you've got to do this. And sometimes we do pray like that, don't we? That's not the way God works. When God answers us, it's because of his grace, isn't it? And he doesn't want us to become spoiled Christians when we say, God, do this, do this, do this. And it's very easy to be like this, isn't it? And we've got to learn as we grow in maturity to trust that God loves us even when he doesn't do what we want him to do. You know what I said? When God doesn't do what we want him to do. Who is in charge? Is it God or is it me? Is it me who tells God what he's got to do? Or is it me submitting to God's plan? Not easy, eh? When I heard that I had... Uh, I nearly say prostate cancer. It's prostate cancer. What do you think I prayed for? The God who healed me. What do you think I felt when it didn't happen? <laughs> yes, you're in good thinking. Well, I think I've learned a bit enough now not to be upset. But who's going to be in charge of my life? 
Is it me telling God what he's got to do? Or is it me saying, God, this is what I'd like you to do. And if you don't do it, well, I'm going to let you control my life. And I want to tell you something. That even if I'm not healed, for the moment, God is in control. And there is nothing more worthwhile than knowing that God is in control of your life. You see, even if Jesus stays for two days, he still loves us. Not just once, but twice. And what God wants to do is not necessarily what you want him to do, but he wants, you to change, he wants to change your life. And he says to one of the sisters, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Wouldn't you like to see the glory of God? Which is more important? That God does what you tell him to do, or that you see the glory of God? So the question is this. Do you really believe that Jesus loves you? Do you really believe that Jesus loves you even if he doesn't do what you want him to do? Do you believe that Jesus loves you even if he sounds silent? And so, this brings us into our discussion questions. And I had to have two questions, two questions. When has God made you wait for an answer? Now, I'm sure that there are many of you who will have some very interesting stories to say. Because most of us have felt disappointed. What was he said? What was it you said? Upset. Or you feel upset because God doesn't... And that's exactly right. And the second question is... What did you learn? Without a question mark. What did you learn? Because that's the most important thing, isn't it? And the, one of the great issues is what do you learn when God doesn't do what you want him to do? And that is the sign of a mature Christian. <laughs>